I'm coming to this uh, passage in 2 Corinthians 12 uh, one more time. We've looked at it for two previous Sundays. First Sunday, we looked at the first part of this paragraph. Last Sunday, we focused on uh, the middle section of it. And uh, this morning, I want to focus on the end where Paul says, my grace, or the Lord says to Paul, my grace is sufficient. And so the theme of the message this morning is drawn from the last section of this passage, and I've entitled it, All Sufficient Grace. And so I don't want to read the entire passage. I want to pick up the reading with verse 7. Paul is talking about uh, his thorn in the flesh, his affliction, which was great. Paul says in verse 7, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, or depending on your translation, to torment me, to buffet me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I've uh, mentioned this before, back in, in uh, 1995 when I was uh, teaching at the Free Lutheran uh, Bible College and uh, Seminary in Minneapolis, uh, I had the opportunity in uh, January of uh, 1995 to attend uh, the Bethlehem Conference for Pastors. It's a conference held uh, yearly at uh, Bethlehem Baptist Church in downtown uh, Minneapolis. And uh, one of the highlights of each year's conference that uh, all the pastors looked forward to, uh, John Piper, the senior pastor at Bethlehem Baptist, would present a lecture on one of the great heroes from church history. I, of course, particularly interested in that. And uh, the focus of each year's lecture was, so what are the lessons for us as pastors from this person's life and ministry? Well, in 1995, uh, his lecture was on Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great 19th century Baptist preacher from London. And the title of his lecture was Preaching Through Adversity. Uh, I remember uh, Dr. Piper saying, how do you preach when you don't even feel like you can get up on a Sunday? Uh, how do you preach when you've had an overwhelming week? How do you preach when uh, there's unremitting criticism, perhaps? And so the title was Preaching Through Adversity, and in, as part of his introduction, here's what John Piper said. He said, everyone faces adversity. That's not just pastors, is it? Everyone faces adversity and must find ways to persevere through the oppressing moments of life. My aim in this lecture is to give you strength to keep on preaching through adversity. And so with that statement, I was ready to hear what he had to say. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, here's a photograph of him. Charles Haddon Spurgeon is uh, not as well known today as he was even a generation ago. I had to explain this morning who he was. A generation ago, everybody would have recognized readily who he was. But, but I, I choose him as an illustration this morning 
because his life story reflects in uh, an amazing way Paul's experience that he has described in our text. You go back to chapter 11 and Paul describes many trials that he faced, dangers, persecution, uh, even opposition from false brothers, Paul says. And then we come to this chapter, chapter 12, and his painful thorn in the flesh that Paul references here. A thorn you notice in our text with regard to Paul that the Lord did not remove from his life. Even though you notice what was Paul's response when this thorn came, Paul responded with earnest, persistent prayer that the Lord would take it away. And you can imagine his prayer, Lord, I would be much more effective if this were gone from my life. But you notice, even though there was persistent and anguished prayer, the Lord didn't remove the thorn. But what did the Lord say? I will give you abundant grace. I will give you sufficient grace to face everything that is in front of you. And you notice Paul's response at the end of this passage, Paul accepted that answer. And through the years already that he had experienced, 14-some years, and then the years that followed the writing of 2 Corinthians, in times of deep affliction and trials and this unremitting thorn, the grace and the glory of Christ remained front and central in Paul's ministry. So I want to tell you something about Charles Spurgeon's life. I want to tell you his story this morning. It'll illuminate this text. Charles Spurgeon was known as the Prince of Preachers. He died, as you notice, in the year 1892. He was only 57 years old. At the time of his death, he had been pastor of Metropolitan Tabernacle in London for some 38 years. And I want to tell you a little bit about his life, a little bit about his ministry and his impact to, to flesh out this text with somebody in relatively recent history of the Christian church. I'll start with Spurgeon's preaching. He began his preaching ministry at the age of 19. And by the time he was 22 years old, he was the most popular preacher in the English-speaking world at 22. He had tremendous oratorical skills. He could hold his listeners spellbound throughout his entire sermon. During his lifetime, he preached some 3,600 sermons. Uh, every last one of them was transcribed as he preached them. Of course, there was no recording equipment, so they'd be transcribed in shorthand and then later written out in longhand. All of his sermons together, I've seen the set. It's 63 volumes. It's called the Metropolitan Pulpit. It, it still stands today as the largest set of books by any Christian in the history of the Christian church. Thousands and thousands of pages. During his lifetime, uh, copies of his sermons, 56 million copies sold, uh, translated into 40 languages. Uh, during his ministry, of course, there was no radio, there was no internet. He preached to some one million people face to face during his ministry. He personally baptized some 15,000 converts. 
On October 7th, as a young man, 1857, he preached to the largest crowd in his ministry. It was at a place newly constructed to um, celebrate the glories of the Industrial Revolution, the Crystal Palace. Here is a reconstruction of it in London. It was a gleaming glass and iron building. 24,000 came that day to hear him as he preached. Here's an illustration from uh, somebody who was in the audience. There's Spurgeon in the pulpit right there. 24,000 in the audience. No microphones, of course. No amplification. He had a tremendous voice. Tremendous reach. So early on in his ministry, tens of thousands came to hear him preach. Well, his congregation grew, and so a new building needed to be built for the Baptist church that he was a pastor of there in London. And so in 1861, they moved into, this is an old photograph showing the building, what it looked like back when it was built. Um, Spurgeon wanted it to be built in a Greek style because the New Testament was written in Greek, he said. And the New Testament proclaims Christ. And so this was the facade of the Metropolitan Tabernacle. It seated 5,600 people. Think about a sanctuary of that size. Here's a photo of it, which doesn't do justice to it, because the photo's taken about halfway down the sanctuary. But you can see all the galleries and balconies. Here's the pulpit where he preached from, right there, on the second level. 5,600 in that Metropolitan Tabernacle. He was uh, indeed the Prince of Preachers. Uh, but that wasn't all. His preaching was world-renowned. But during his years of ministry, he was instrumental in founding 66 parachurch organizations, you can imagine. He founded a pastor's college that he was personally involved in. He founded an orphanage. Uh, there were various ministries to the poor and the outcast. Uh, he uh, founded a ministry helping to subsidize widows who had financial needs. Uh, he established a home for women escaping from domestic abuse and violence. 66 organizations, that wasn't all. Uh, he was an editor. He edited the famous Sword and Trowel, which was a monthly uh, periodical. Uh, he produced uh, some 140 books. I have several of them in my library. I've got uh, his Treasury of David, which is three volumes. It takes up about this much space on my shelf, 1,500 pages going over all the Psalms of David. That's just one of his books. He received an average of 500 letters a day, and, or a week, I should say, and he needed those uh, that would help him, of course, answer all the correspondence. He's the one who invented the wordless book. For evangelism, you've seen it with the red page and the black page and the white page. He's the one that invented the wordless book. He was a leader of, a leader for truth in uh, the downgrade controversy. 1897, the Baptist Union of Great Britain, there was a great controversy that swept through the Baptist churches of Great Britain. And Spurgeon took the lead, and he made the public charge that some of his fellow Baptist pastors were downgrading the faith. And what he meant by that is they were embracing Darwinian evolution, they were denying the inspiration of Scripture, they rejected the idea that Christ's death on the cross was an atonement for sin, they were setting aside the great doctrine of justification by grace through faith. And so he made a very public stand, and there were many who opposed him, 
And even his own Baptist denomination censured him for what he had to say. And that took a tremendous toll on him. Remember Paul talks about false brothers who tried to undermine him in chapter 11? It took a toll on him. Historians will say it hastened his death less than four years later. Well, when he died, the crowds that wanted to attend his funeral were so massive they held five services in the Metropolitan Tabernacle. The two days preceding his funeral, there were two services on each of the two days for four. And then there was um, the actual funeral service itself. Um, Historians estimate that either attending the service or passing by his casket some 100,000 individuals. Uh, In fact, on the day of the funeral, the uh, London police force had to send out 800 additional officers on the streets because the streets, thousands upon thousands. Here's uh, an illustration from the time of Spurgeon's funeral procession. And you notice the thousands and thousands packing each side of the street um, on the day of his funeral. Got to the cemetery. I thought this was beautiful. Here's his, oops, let me go back to it. Here's his casket here and palm branches arched over it, signs of resurrection victory. Uh, the funeral procession was two miles long at his death. Charles Spurgeon, it's worth learning more about his life and his ministry. He was one of the great towering giants, uh, not just of the 19th century, but of the Christian church as a whole. He was a person of immense gifts, many, many gifts that he had. Uh, He was a person of life and joy and even humor. Um, He had to restrain his humor, he said, in the pulpit, because sometimes it might not come across as appropriate. But, But he was a man who had a tremendous sense of humor, along with his scholarship and his preaching. Yet his life was filled with the deepest afflictions from A to Z. To use Paul's words, among the many afflictions, he had a thorn in the flesh. And for Spurgeon, it was unremitting depression. Depression, historians will say, that came about because of personal tragedies, because of a whole host of illnesses, because of stress, today he would most certainly be diagnosed as clinically depressed. That was Spurgeon. The roots of his depression go back to when he was a young preacher. Back on the 19th of October in 1856, uh, he preached in this building, uh, the Music Hall at Royal Surrey Gardens. Here's an old kind of grainy photograph of the building. His own church couldn't hold the people on that Sunday. That place seated 12,000. So the service was held there in that building that Sunday, and somewhere in the middle of the gathering, somebody shouted out, fire, 12,000 people. And there was an ensuing stampede, and seven people were killed at the worship service. And there were a large number of people injured. Spurgeon was 22 years old when that happened. And that disaster impacted him for the rest of his life. We would call it PTSD today. 
That disaster impacted him for the rest of his life. A, a close friend of his and one of Spurgeon's biographers, uh, from personal observation, he said this, speaking about his friend Charles Spurgeon, says he endured a furnace of mental suffering. That's the way his friend put it. Uh, on that night and afterward. And two years after that tragic event where so many were killed and injured, at the age of 24, his unrelenting battle with depression began and it lasted his lifetime. Thorn in the flesh. But that wasn't all. Here's a picture of his wife, Susanna. Uh, in 1865, when his wife was 33 years old, she uh, encountered a serious invalid, which pretty much kept her in the house. Um, she was not able to get out for much of anything ever. In fact, her physical afflictions were such that she seldom heard her husband preach for the last 27 years of his life. She was housebound. But that wasn't all. Uh, in addition to that, Spurgeon experienced various physical afflictions. He suffered from gout and from rheumatism, and from Bright's disease, which uh, is an inflammation of the kidneys. And uh, during the last 22 years of his life, illness and pain and depression cut him down again and again. In fact, during uh, the final 22 years of his life, uh, he was gone a third of the time from the pulpit of his church because he was either too sick to be there, he was recovering, or he was trying to take precautions against further onset of whether it was depression or various illnesses that he battled with. Spurgeon himself made this statement. He said, my worst feature, he said, these are his words, is my depression. My worst feature. On one occasion, let me read his words, he said this, my spirits were sunken so low that I could weep by the hour like a child and yet not know what I wept for. Uh, his wife Susanna wrote this. On one occasion, his depression was so severe that these are her words, speaking about her husband, she said, the anguish was so deep and violent that reason seemed to totter on its throne and we sometimes feared that he would never preach again. Charles Spurgeon. In his famous lectures to his students, which is an amazing book to read, he talks about depression to his seminary students. And here's what he says, causeless depression cannot be reasoned with, nor can David's harp charm it away by sweet discoursings. As well fight with the mist as with this shapeless, undefinable, yet all-beclouding hopelessness. The iron bolt which so mysteriously fastens the door of hope and holds our spirit in gloomy prison needs a heavenly hand to push it back. So how did he keep going? His wife an invalid, various physical afflictions, clinical depression, his fellow Baptist pastors standing against him. How did he keep going? What kept him going was the same thing that kept the Apostle Paul going, and that was an unwavering belief in the sovereignty of God. Spurgeon believed, Paul believed, that all the afflictions in his life were designed by God, designed by God, for the good of his ministry and for the glory of Christ. Here's what Spurgeon says. 
He says, it would be a very sharp and trying experience to me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me. That the bitter cup was never filled by his hand. That my trials were never measured out by him, nor sent to me by his arrangement as to their weight and quantity. God brings trials. God sends trials. God allows trials. Why is that? And I can testify to this from personal experience because in the midst of them, rather than in carefree, the sun is shining times, we grow in grace and spiritual maturity. I I referenced this quotation last week to our men's Bible study this past Tuesday. Just paraphrased it briefly for them in our discussion. Here's what Spurgeon says. He says, I am afraid that all the grace that I have got in my comfortable and easy times and happy hours might almost lie on a penny. But the good that I have received from my sorrows and pains and griefs is altogether incalculable. Affliction is the best furniture in my house. It is the best book in a minister's library. Suffering. Think about it for yourself in your own experience, whether it be an unremitting thorn in the flesh, may, whether it be a suffering and a trial of some other kind. I've thought about this. Suffering is paradoxical, isn't it? Suffering is bad, and yet it's good. Suffering is painful, and yet it's helpful. Suffering is confusing, and yet it's enlightening. Suffering is no joke, but yet it produces joy in the believer. Listen to this statement from his lectures. This is a provocative statement. Spurgeon said, I dare say the greatest earthly blessing that God can give any of us is health with the exception of sickness. Think about that. Sufferings and trials of various kinds come to each of us. And sometimes those sufferings and trials flood into our lives. And and when they come, what does the world say to you? Why, you're equal to the challenge. Wasn't true for Spurgeon wasn't true for Paul. If you're honest with yourself, it's not true for you. I, you know, I think about commencement addresses. I just uh, celebrated my 50th uh, anniversary uh, from graduating from high school, traveled down to Minneapolis, saw friends I hadn't seen for 50 years. And I think about the commencement address, and you can think about commencement addresses you've heard. It's just filled with a bunch of empty, stupid cliches, aren't they? Uh, You think about self-help books. You think about motivational speakers. Believe in yourself. Find your inner strength. Dream big and you will achieve it. Reach for the stars. God helps those who help themselves. I mean, all that kind of empty, harmful nonsense that you hear. What is the answer in our text? How do you face the trials and struggles of life? Verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you, the text says. My power is made perfect in weakness. 
And you notice in verse 10, Paul speaks about his weaknesses. Notice what he adds to the list. Insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamity. Paul says to us, you and I can be strong in all of those very difficult and trying times. And why is that? How can that be? Notice verse 9. Paul speaks about the power of Christ resting on him. I want you to think about those words, rest upon. The power of Christ resting upon me. It's a translation. Paul uses a Greek word, which is a translation of a Hebrew word that occurs in Exodus 40 and verse 34 in regard to the tabernacle. After the tabernacle was finished, if you remember the account, Moses received the blueprints, if you will, on Mount Sinai. And he built the tabernacle according to the specifications. And when the tabernacle was finished and it was dedicated to the Lord there in the wilderness, here's what Exodus 40 and verse 34 says. Then the cloud covered, it's the same word as in our text, the cloud rested upon the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So here are these people in the wilderness. They've got 40 years to go. It wasn't going to be an easy time. It was going to be time of trials and battle and setbacks and hardships and questionings and all of those things. And in the midst of it all, what does Exodus say? God's presence rested upon them their whole pilgrim journey till they crossed over safely to the promised land. Paul draws on that in this text, that through all of their trials, the Old Testament people, through every difficulty, through every setback, there was God's presence there overshadowing them their whole journey through. God's power and glory and presence remained in their midst. And Paul says, that's what it is for me. How do I make it? It's because God's presence, like it rested on the tabernacle in the midst of his people, God's presence rests upon me. He will see me safely to that distant shore. How good it is to know God is in our midst when we're believers. John, in his gospel, the first chapter, uses a form of the same word where he says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, he pitched his tent. He set up his tabernacle in our neighborhood, John says. That's good news. Through Jesus Christ, God is present with us. He overshadows us. His glory and grace are there. And it's not just for this life. Revelation chapter 7 and verse 15, speaking about that great multitude before the throne, dressed in white from every tribe, tongue, nation. Here's what the text says. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them. He will overshadow them. His presence will rest upon them. That's the same word as in our text. There for all of eternity, God's presence will surround us, be in our midst, will rest upon us. Paul takes great hope and encouragement in that. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them. He will tent with them. His glory will overshadow them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. What encouragement that is. And so here's the point that, that I want you to, to lay hold of, is that the all-powerful Christ, no matter whether it's an unremitting thorn that you battle with, 
whether it is affliction or trial of one kind or another, if you are a believer, the all-powerful Christ pitches his tent in the middle of your weakness. He's not distant. He's right there. His presence is there. And he overshadows you every step of your pilgrim journey until you cross the river, so to speak, and you enter into glory. You enter into that heavenly Canaan. You enter into that land of promise. That's what Paul takes great hope in. And so to think of it for yourself, his presence, Christ's presence, overshadows you, rests upon you during your pilgrim journey. So whatever the weakness, whatever the trial, whatever the affliction, whatever the suffering, if you are a believer in Christ, take great hope from this text. God's grace is sufficient in the midst of whatever it is, Paul has a whole catalog of things in chapter 11, and he mentions his thorn in the flesh here in chapter 12. And so Paul was not a person filled with hopelessness. In the midst of all, there were days of tears, no doubt about it. There were days of questions, no doubt about it. There were days of pain and suffering, no doubt about it. But through it all, Paul persevered. By the grace of God. And you notice here in our text, Paul ultimately responded to his thorn in the flesh. How? You notice it wasn't with anger, it wasn't with bitterness, there was no self pity, there was no accusation, there was no complaining, there was no why me, this isn't fair. You notice there's none of that in this text. How did Paul respond to his thorn in the flesh and the whole catalog of afflictions back in chapter 11? There are two words. It's encapsulated in two words. One is found in verse 9 and one is found in verse 10. Here's the word in verse 9. Gladly. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Paul didn't respond with a spirit of fatalism. What will be, will be. That's fatalism. He didn't respond with a spirit of resignation. Can't do anything about it, so might as well learn to live with it. That wasn't his spirit. But he gladly embraced, you notice weakness is in the plural, isn't it? Gladly embraced his weaknesses. There's the first response. How does anybody ever do that? You don't, apart from the grace of God. Gladly. And then the second word is in verse 10. It's the word content. Uh, the, the, the word is, is content, the next word um, in, in verse 10. Uh, Paul says, for the sake of Christ, then, I am content with. You notice the list there, weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. And what's significant about that word content, it's the same word that was used at the baptism of Christ. When uh, Jesus was baptized, you remember you heard the voice from heaven, and what did the voice say? This is my beloved son in whom I am, well, the versions translate it, well pleased. It's the same word as our text. This is my beloved son in whom I am content. Paul is saying here, if what I'm experiencing, Lord, is for your glory, if what I am experiencing is for my highest good, I will be most glad and I will be well pleased 
to receive whatever it is that comes from your hand. Let me close with, with this, a quotation, uh, one more from Charles Spurgeon. It's a quotation from a sermon on this text. Uh, he preached on verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you. April 2nd, Sunday, 1876. Here is part of what Spurgeon said in that sermon. He says, The grace of our Lord Jesus is sufficient to uphold thee, sufficient to strengthen thee, sufficient to comfort thee, sufficient to make thy trouble useful to thee, sufficient to enable thee to triumph over it, sufficient to bring thee out of it, sufficient to bring thee out of 10,000 like it, sufficient to bring thee home to heaven. Whatever would be good for thee, Christ's grace is sufficient to bestow. Whatever would harm thee, his grace is sufficient to avert. Whatever thou desirest, his grace is sufficient to give thee, if it be good for thee. Whatever thou wouldst avoid, his grace can shield thee from it, if so his wisdom shall dictate. Here let me press upon you the pleasing duty of taking home the promise personally at this moment. For no believer here need be under any fear, since for him also, at this very instant, the grace of the Lord Jesus is sufficient. Sufficient for all. God's grace, all sufficient. Let's bow together. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you that there is a sufficiency that is not our own. We thank you that there is a provision which is abundant. We thank you for your presence which rests upon us, which overshadows us in all the circumstances of life. We thank you for your faithfulness. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that although none of us are exempt from trials, none of us are exempt from burdens, some of us have an unremitting affliction which we wish, which we've prayed for would go away and it doesn't go anywhere. So, Lord, what do we do? Can we hear you saying to us, my grace is sufficient? My power shines forth in your weakness. So, Lord, may we find your sufficiency in our lives in all things. May we find strength of heaven in our lives in all things. May your Holy Spirit fill us and remind us of these truths in times of distress, in times of great need, in times where we are overwhelmed and we have questions from one end to the other. Lord, uh, give us a faith which sees beyond the limitation of our circumstances, a faith that can see beyond the 40 years of wilderness wandering, so to speak, and to know that we have a destination, to know that we have a land of promise, to know that you have promised that your hand will guide us safely there, and we will enter with joy into your presence where there are no more tears, there is no more illness, sorrow, all these things the scripture says will not be there. There is that day coming. And Lord, for your own purposes in this life, there are many things we struggle with, but Lord, can we see that your good purposes underlie all of them? Can we trust you in everything, knowing that when your good and perfect will is done, in the end, it is always best for us, and ultimately, it is for your praise and honor and glory. So we give you thanks for your presence with each of us as believers, your spirit in our heart, your presence resting upon us taking us safely to our destination. For all these things we give you thanks in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen.